Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Firetech Roundup. Roundup, this week we are looking at the news from the week commencing October 25th, which lines up with the Firetech Roundup episode 91, which was hosted by Louise Fenn this week. Uh, your host on the podcast is myself, Eloisa Tovey, and we also got Andy Tebb. Hello. Um, and between us, we're just going to run through the five bits of news that came up, um, kind of give our little kind of take on what we think goes on. It's usually just me asking Tebb's questions because I don't fully understand the news. Um, and so hopefully you get as much of out of this as I do on a weekly basis. You do yourself a massive disservice. <laughs> I just really don't, really don't. Um, we have coffees with us this week, so if you hear us slurping, we apologise, but, you know, we need mm. the caffeine, so... Um, we do at this time. Absolutely. Yeah. So jumping straight in, we have, number one, the government's plan to cut a surcharge on bank profits will disadvantage digital challenger banks, which face a steep rise in corporation tax. So corporation taxes rise into 25% in 2023. The government is giving something back to the big banks by cutting their profit surcharge by from 8% to 3% uh, for profits over 25 million. Now, the problem with this is because fintech banks are highly investment and currently loss making, or a lot of them are in their early days, making relatively low profits, um, they'll miss out on these additional benefits. And there's a massive concern that obviously of all the progress we've made of recent, of late, in terms of the extra investment that we've had within the UK, the fact we only sit just behind the US, I believe, in terms yeah. of investment into fintech, who who's going to suffer from this? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's obviously not just fintech who will suffer, but it seems that there's a an advantage here that big banks will have and... Yeah, I mean, it seemed a really weird slant on this for me. Um, so, yes, I agree. It's not fair. Um, but I think there's very few fintechs that are banks. Okay. Most fintechs are payment providers or API aggregators or what have you. So when we talk about fintechs, most people think Monzo, think Starling, Um the vast majority of fintechs provide an element of banking functionality. Very few of them are a full suite bank. Um, so do you need a banking license to be a fintech? It depends on the product you're pitching. The vast majority of those are things like, like I say, like Stripe is a payments provider, right? It's not a bank. Yeah. But it's one of the best and most disruptive, best in massive air quotes, uh, <laughs> and most disruptive um, fintechs out on the market. So... Yeah, I don't think this necessarily hurts the fintech sector. I think it's grossly unfair for those fintechs that are banks because, yes, it says it's just the sort of completely backwards taxation policy we've got at the moment, which is the bigger you are, the less tax you should pay. As though, you know, it goes back to this conversation we were having the other day that tax is a cost that should be minimised and it seems terribly, terribly unfair that I have to pay it just because I'm very successful. You're like, (laughs) well, you're kind of misunderstanding what tax is for and, you know, arguably you're able to be that big because you're taking advantage of a bunch of infrastructure and people that someone had to pay to educate and, you know, Canary Wharf doesn't exist in isolation. How did the tube get there and all that sort of stuff? So maybe pay some tax, (laughs) you know, and that would be good. So I think there's a a general, more broad, like, taxation conversation. People like Elizabeth Warren out in the US talk about this way, way better than me. Um, In fact, she writes books about it. Who wouldn't know a Harvard professor very good at that sort of stuff? Almost a president at one point. Um, But... Ultimately, yes, it's not fair on those banks like Monzo and Starling, although I think Starling's probably pushing towards that 25 million. Ultimately, yeah. though, I don't understand. Well, I do understand why they've done this. The <clears throat> The reason for it is they're worried that London is becoming less competitive compared to um, the financial centres on the continent. 
So we'll reduce that taxation rate from 8 to 3% to give them an edge. Is it actually going to improve operational performance or is it just going to result in more dividend for, for shares? And it doesn't address the problem of why London is less competitive at the moment, because we're not allowed to say that Brexit is bad for financial services. Hmm. So this kind of feels like the wrong behaviours. There is a fundamental structural problem that one of the world's biggest financial centres is struggling with. The answer is cut tax. Well, that's just mitigating the issue. This problem is only going to get worse. People in Frankfurt, people in Holland are just going to be sat there going, sooner or later, we're coming for your lunch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting is, you know, we're saying here we're looking after the big banks and we want to make sure there's competitiveness within the UK that remains. Yeah. What's going to stop now fintech from setting up overseas from choosing right. Europe or the US if they're going to be more favoured over there in terms of yeah. opportunities? So if, um, you know, if, you know, Monzo and Starling are looking at the same bunch of consumers uh, to grow their ranks. They're trying to pick the pockets of the likes of Barclays and that West for current account holders. If this makes them less competitive, that would be tough. Mm. And maybe people like N26 out of Germany can come back here where they struggled previously and say, hey, we're cheaper because we're headquartered in Germany. We're not, we're not headquartered here. We've got all those advantages and benefits of building up an economies of scale in you know a group of 27 countries mm. and we can then turn around and do that back in the uk and it'd be very difficult for people like Monzo and starling to compete against i mean that's all kind of crystal ball stuff maybe that'll turn out to be the case ultimately it's just it's a weird cut, yeah, the yeah it, in this <laughs> environment going the last thing i need is money yeah. Seems a strange decision for the government to take. I, I get it, it's popular policy. It'll be a popular policy but amongst a bunch of donors. But yeah, cutting the taxes on that group from 83% has a load of unintended consequences. Yes, it will hurt some fintech. Um, it's not ultimately fixing the problem that you've got. So yeah, it just seemed a really strange thing to do. Mm-hmm. I understand why the fintechs are crying foul, but like on my list of problems with this policy, that's like number 23 or something you know like (laughs) but yeah i mean it's another bad unintended consequence yeah yeah yeah. so a bit of a depressing story to open with sorry sorry guys Uh, well indeed indeed yeah (laughs) always listening we apologize i don't even think the second one is uh that much cheerier but no no we're not going to be uh we're not going to be doing cartwheels uh number two the uk is to phase out a multi-billion pound tax on tech tech giants after global reforms. Now, I really actually do want to pick a brain on this one because I really tried to read about it and I couldn't quite understand the the second part of it. But the first part is uh, last year, the UK announced a 2% digital service tax on the likes of Facebook, Google and Amazon in response to concerns that multinational tech giants were making money in the UK Mm -hmm. but then were shifting all their profits overseas where they could be taxed at a lower rate. Yeah. Um, Which, again, is argumentally not a nice thing to do. But if there's a loophole there, why wouldn't you use it in the case of uh, the big giants? Apart from, you know, ethics. Apart from ethics. That that doesn't seem to come into Facebook's kind of like book at the moment. Um, But the government said at the time it would scrap the tax once a global solution was in place. And now, under a deal agreed by 136 countries earlier this month, Mm -hmm. we can expect to see new rules come into force in 2023. Yeah. The thing I was a little bit weird about, or I couldn't quite get my head around, was like, um, so the tax was never meant to be permanent, which is fine. And obviously that global solution is now now come into place. Um, But under the new deal... What's happening is the largest and most profitable multinationals will be expected to pay a fair share of tax in the markets where they do business mm-hmm. and not just where they have the headquarters, which is very lovely. Yeah. Um, but it was something about the fact that if you, they were allowed to um, 
claim back money from us during the kind of the transition period. Right. Or something. <laughs> it all <laughs> sounded something. a bit, yeah. So, um, so I can't remember where this ended up. I think, I think there was like a global rate of like 15% that was agreed, something like that. Okay, yes. Um, the US really led the charge on that. Disappointingly, our own government whittled it down a bit. And I think that's why it ended up at 15%. That okay. was the lowest common denominator. And we really led the charge on that. So you had the slightly weird situation of, you know, a British government talking an American president out of the higher tax rate. <laughs> um, but anyway. What is it with our prominent taxes? It's, it's very right. strange. Uh, well, trickle-down economics apparently works somewhere in the world. And I think just, you know, in the brains of uh, a small number of Chicago school economics graduates and Sadly, they're helping set our policy at the moment. Um, even the US has moved on from it. Uh, well, outside the Republican Party. But um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so that's a long-winded way of saying that. I think the rate was great, was 15, so. Which would be great. Um, you know, having a global tax rate, very good, because it stops. There's no guarantee that that tax rate will be paid in your country. Like mm. Maybe it will still be paid in the country that's been the... Um, tax um shelter that you've previously been using as your registered company address but there are some headaches that go with like offshoring your tax liabilities and if you're paying the same tax everywhere there's a lot of incentives for companies to go well what's the point still like having our registered address in luxembourg or the cayman islands or where have you yeah um so we might as well just put it where it is and pay the tax that we've got to pay it's only 15 percent but it's 15 percent everywhere we go yeah. So let's stop having these ridiculously convoluted structures and make our business simpler, which is great. Yes, there will be some tax claim back. First of all, for the period where this overlaps, so they'll probably say we don't want to double bubble our taxes. Yeah. So maybe if they pay the 15, they'll get a rebate on two that they pay. The other thing is that any tax people get to claim certain tax exceptions against. I think if you look at the UK tax code, it's taller than me. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite short, but it is big, yeah. right? Um, someone joked, but it's not really a joke, that the most effective tax policy would be to say year on year, I'm setting HMRC the goal of taking two inches off this tax code every year, yeah. you know, just whittle out the exception. So there can be claim backs against that. Yeah. The other thing is that if your costs are your costs, so Amazon cop some flack for being registered in Luxembourg for a relatively low rate of VAT. Mm. They're not actually taking the same approach to tax as a lot of their competitors like Google, Apple, Facebook. Amazon generally pays quite a low rate of tax because they spend all their profit. And they spend their profit on R&D for crazy weird stuff. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, they make a vast amount of money because they're such a huge firm. Um, so, you know, it's still, in terms of absolute numbers, big profits coming out of Amazon. But you look at percentage and it looks quite low, actually. Now, it doesn't matter because Amazon rarely, well, not rarely, have never paid a dividend and will not. That is their stated policy. Yeah. If you want to make money off those shares, you make them in the increase of the share value. But what it means is they don't need those profits to pay out as dividends. Mm. Quite rightly, they view dividends like crap for shareholders. You pay them out one year and they want them every year. Right? Absolutely, yeah. But what they do is they take their operating profit and they invest it in crazy R&D to the rest of the world. But it's not crazy to them because in their world, they're packing 100 horses for the one that wins. Yep. And that's why you end up with AWS. 100%. That's why yeah. you end up with the Kindle, stuff like that. Mm. 
Now, what that means is because they're spending so much on costs, they're genuine costs, mm -hmm. and they're only liable for taxation on the profit. That's why corporation tax kicks in. So Amazon's bill is relative to the others going to be quite low because yeah. actually their costs in massive air quotes are very high because they spend a lot of it on stuff that you might not think is good. But, but the model is actually truly based on innovation rather yeah, than... Yeah. They view it as essential to the long-term survival of the company. Yeah. And you know what? Some of the most interesting tech jobs come out of those things that don't eventually work, but mm. you learn a lot along the way. Well, um, I was watching the documentary last night about the million billion dollar code, mm. um, and it's basically about Google Earth yeah. and Google um, how that first came about. And it wasn't Google who got it; it was a code that was written thirty years prior. But they were two. Tell I got ah. Uh, I have to find it. Um, but they were thirty years ahead of time. But the technology couldn't keep up with what they were doing, and they couldn't. The computers needed to run the software to show what they could do was like millions of pounds and yeah. not every person could have it and what google managed to, uh, to work out obviously was how to commercialize it or how to get it onto an everyday computer um but what was interesting about that is as you said that was amazon who was invent it took something and it sorry the guys who originally did it did it for no profit it yeah. was four guys in a warehouse in berlin and they just decided to have some fun yeah. they got a really super computer they started working with 3d one of the guys had a 3d globe on his computer mm. and he's like oh wouldn't it be really cool and he just tried to zoom in as far as he could went a bit blurry and he's yeah. like wouldn't it be really cool to do this they buddied up with tokyo mm. tokyo basically gave them their first funding um to kind of take this forward and the reason that they won the court case against amazon 30 years later for stealing their code mm. air quotes use that um was because they weren't in it for the profit and they were able to demonstrate that they were literally four guys who wanted to make a positive change in the world by giving people something extraordinary. But they, they sued Google. Yeah, Amazon. yeah, for a billion. But, yeah. but, but fair enough, because like, they but created... But Google, so... you said Amazon. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> not Amazon, Google Earth. It was yeah. definitely Google. Um, yeah. I feel like I'm doing a bad job at talking no, about no, no, this no, podcast, no. Um, this documentary. No, no, better. no, no. But, but that is not unusual. Um, what is interesting is the not-for-profit element. Hmm. But to bring that back to companies like Amazon, that's what they're terrified of. Yeah. They're terrified of four guys in a warehouse doing this. Someone like Google buying it and having the next big thing that they missed. Mm. And that's why they invest so much in it. So in their case, the business tax would be low. Yeah. In the case of other people like Apple, famously domiciled for tax purposes in Ireland, because effectively their tax rate is 1%. It's not a bad tax rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty painful one if you're trying to run a health service, though. Um, so this would this would address some of that. But, yeah, there'll be some claim backs because, one, you run up costs, two, you get tax incentives for things like capital investment, you know, and there'll be a period where these two tax rates will overlap. Mm. Ultimately, though, I think it's quite a good story. You've... Um, got 136 countries that have agreed that there's going to be a minimum tax rate. Yeah. And it's one of the few times that global leaders have come together and really pulled something out of the bag. And, you know, it feels, I think, like the right time for them. I would argue it probably doesn't go far enough, mm. but it feels like a good start. Let's hope they can recreate that element of cooperation at the COP26. Well, well, well. We'll see. Although I've heard the Queen is going to zoom herself in, which is quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than flying up there, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bless her. 
Um, so number three, the UK government gives contract to store MI5, MI6 and GCHQ's data to UK located AWS data centers. Mm. Now, one might conceive of a searchable spice data warehouse that could um, enable searches across the free agencies files in a single process. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment that actually there's going to be need a lot of indexing and a lot of migration to AWS in a organized manner, which obviously doesn't exist at the moment. So whilst it's probably something they're moving towards, um, at the moment, the actual things they're looking for is being able to sift through the huge amounts of data in minutes. Um, They're actually less interested in about being able to store masses of more data. The primary goal at this precise moment in time is just to quick analytics of the stuff they already have. They're not being able to do it. And they've chosen AWS to do it, which is pretty cool. We all... Yeah, when we do data like migrations, you know, we um, we did one for um, a big household name bank. We saw like hundred time, hundred times improvements in um, analytics and query times. But that and is just says something so much about the processes within the banks that well, that vast improvement. AWS is good. Yeah, don't get me wrong, but like, yeah. where were you starting from? Well, to yeah, because it's on old infrastructure and it's on disparate infrastructure because mm-hmm. you, you can't have it all in one place. You know, if you're if you're thinking about how you provision, you run out of space in a data center, so you're spanning across multiple data centers yeah. and all that stuff. Far less of a problem in AWS. Um, what's interesting about this, I think there were two elements for me. One, um, there was that kind of like tagline of the story, and AWS won't be able to see the data. It's kind of like... <laughs> Probably worth telling people that AWS can't see your data anyway. If you're yeah. any customer, you know <laughs> you this could, isn't just right into the yeah, yeah, you could you can lock them out, right? Like if you know, and they don't want to see it, right? Um, you know, if you're a bank, they they don't want to be looking at your data. Um, the other thing is um, the we talked a while back about a US Department of Defense contract. I I am slightly worried about. But now, single deals at sort of five hundred million dollar mark. It feels very big. It feels yeah. like start small and build out. Mm. Um, you know, five hundred million dollars is going to get you a lot of data analytics. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so they've either signed up to something truly massive or for a truly long time. But contracts of that scale for cloud migration worry me. If it's the potential value, fine. Five hundred million pounds feels like a lot to walk out the door with, though, on like your first pass. What if you've chosen the wrong solution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, from a procurement perspective, it didn't feel like what we typically do in the UK, um, and that made me a little sad and worried and concerned. Um, but yeah, in terms of security and all that good stuff, AWS is probably better than most places to put all that information. It'll be interesting to look at the synergies across three agencies, like you say certainly technological advantages to doing it just need to hope that the guys understand the shared security model that they are responsible for the security of their product on someone else's cloud yeah. aws i'm going to look after it for them well this is what's interesting because uh, part of that article was spoke about the french government and the fact that they're setting up their own sovereign public cloud mm. uh called blue and actually it's quite an interesting conversation why we haven't looked to do that mm. and obviously we've spoken before about why aws is such an attractive provider to work with and yeah. you just mentioned a few of their benefits a second ago um it is one of those if america's also kind of using them right and how many systems or how many very sensitive bits of data is this one company going to end up looking after yeah and as you said 
if we're not doing it incrementally in terms of how we're approaching these, it feels like a lot of eggs in a lot of baskets. No, no, a lot of eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, and it just feels, and again, I appreciate France is a massive undertaking, right? You're basically reinventing the wheel. But for added security, you're assuming that your platform will be more protected or you'll be able to build it in a way that... And you're right, you are assuming that. Hmm. And it's quite an assumption to make. I think, yeah, all right, you could lose some of the security data. You might argue that's incredibly scary. I, mean, I suspect a lot of data the security services hold isn't really that exciting. Be like metadata on who I've been WhatsApping at 3 a.m. <laughs> on a Saturday, and that's probably no surprise to anyone in the universe. And it'd be like, well, do you, is that really that big a deal? Yeah. I still worry more about, you know, if AWS go down, so does Sainsbury's, you know? Yeah. And that's this is another argument, I think, for regulation of cloud. Mm. Off cloud? Off cloud. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to say it on every episode yeah. until someone takes us seriously. We um, should get t shirts. Yes. Yeah. Let's do yeah. it. Uh, okay, moving on to number four, low-code and no-code development platforms are types of visual software development environments that allow enterprise developers and citizen developers to drag and drop application components, connect them together, and then create mobile or web apps. The reason I'm telling you this is because apparently low-code and no-code are slowly being adopted by more and more organizations, and yeah. by some are being deemed the future of mm -hmm. coding. Um, a recent study by the Tech Republic showed that almost half of enterprises use low-code and no-code and those not using it, 20%, are thinking of adopting that technology in the coming year. Um, the growth of kind of these sort of platforms have kind of skyrocketed due to a lack of skilled software developers, which yeah. we talk about frequently on this podcast, and the need to improve turnaround time for development projects if business programs can be scaled quickly. Mm -hmm. And the ones that we're looking at here, um, so no-code is typically used to create tactical apps that help uh, simple functions, and you've got low-code, which basically allows them to do a little bit of tinkering to make sure that um, processes are critical to a business or an organization's core systems can be integrated at the same time um, and obviously aligned to digital transformation initiatives. So it kind of gives people a little bit of flexibility, but obviously time is of the essence here and yeah. the main benefit. And it democratizes it. That whole citizen developers is a really interesting concept. I mean, we've played with this for a long time in terms of communities of practice, that sort of stuff. I mean, it can be as complicated or as easy as you want it to be. Mm. Um, low code and no code, lovely idea, works in some situations. Never worry about having to be skeptical when someone tells you it's the future of IT. <laughs> there's no hyperbole there at all. But it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's useful for some situations. What it is, though, isn't a silver bullet. Um, 100%, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and... And quite often people get told it is the silver bullet, like, you know, introduce no code or low code and you will end up in a position where you don't need as many devs mm. um, and your business can do it themselves. Well, sadly, you need to talk to your business about, you, you need still need to teach them some fundamental skills in terms of, you know, being a good developer isn't just about understanding the language you're developing in. It's understanding how to formulate solutions, the best ways to approach process and all that. And I think the guys who sell low-code solutions, like OutSystems, people like that, would be the first to champion that. But mm. sadly, a lot of customers don't hear it. And they buy the product and they think it will solve the problem on their own. Yeah. Um, you know, but but that actually goes for any product. You know, we look at very complicated analytics products and we'll create communities of practice there where we'll do um, training sessions for rookies, training sessions for ninjas. We'll get 
business people up to speed on it and then we'll run communities of practice where we'll go along hopefully the community themselves will be able to give solutions to each other but where they're really struggling that's where our guys the architects will step in and go you know interesting discussion but here is the answer yeah. and gradually you build up those self-sustaining communities that's actually for quite complicated products but the same principle goes for this low code no code debate the problem is though that the technical solution isn't the answer in and of itself and reports like this tend to stress by this tool mm. solution tick yeah um and it's it's that you know it's the people and the process that also has to go along with it yeah. and unfortunately sometimes it's silver bullet i actually think it's a great idea the closer you can get the business to delivery winner it's not necessarily particularly new you know i think this dream was sold with things like what we'd call the uc items but essentially like office macros that type of stuff yeah there's a lot of simple systems and processes that are delivered out there because of macros in the office suite that businesses run yep um this is very similar to that um but it's good for us guys where you know i was talking to um one of our engineers well, it's, so. a, it's a nightmare for all <laughs> we should be doing all this work no i'm joking no, no, no. i'm joking our engineers the other day called massey and yeah. um again you just used uh, one of our engineers so so uh so, so relaxed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um he's a he's a spartan of delivery that one yeah right and to the point where he was i went in to ask how his day was going mm. and he goes oh this is what i've been creating and he showed me a powerpoint deck yeah now i use powerpoint for this right mm. um he coded the whole powerpoint from scratch yeah and then opened it up in a different application yeah my question was why yeah his question was why not yeah. for his answer and uh, it's just a really interesting thing because i think the drag and drop developer isn't the future right you're still to enable someone to drag and drop an application someone needs to have coded that in the first place right yeah. i think it's going to be a good case for open source community i think mm -hmm. that's the popularity of that's going to stay up because mm -hmm. i think again that's what enables the low code mm -hmm. because actually someone's done the groundwork to allow you to take it out of the box yeah. and tinker um but as you said, I don't think this is the future. I think it certainly helps if you can't have the 10 languages you need, coding languages within under your roof. It's another tool in the toolbox, right? 100%. And, and it's, it's suitable in certain use cases. Um, there are things that someone like Massey would consider so boring. Why am I having <laughs> to do this? And actually, if conceptually you as a user know what you want to do and you're relatively comfortable with these tools, then crack on with the yeah. drag and drop. Um, you know, the PowerPoint stuff is absolutely massive, right? Yeah. Oh, I've got to create a stack every week. No, code it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a very Automated. massive solution, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I just think there are there are also two things at the back end of this. Like, one, you're assuming it's never going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's not just understanding um, A plus B equals C, but also how it works and how it works with other things. So when things do start to break down, you know what you're looking for and why it's important. Um, but the second thing as well is, oh, I've completely lost what my second thing was. We can stick with the one thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it's gone. But there is this thing about, you know, by democratising it, you've got to drive innovation. That's what great. Again, you need a business that's geared up for that in terms mm. of trusting those business units to say, here is a thing. It's more than an internal process. Maybe it's a customer solution. Point is, you, yes, this is an interesting tool. Sadly, though, you're still going to have to ask yourself the difficult questions about have I empowered my people? Yeah. Have I trained my people enough? Because you do have to train people still on this. It's just you're not having to take them through a three-year course on Python development. 
instill well how to develop languages you know regardless of language yeah it, but you, you are still going to have to do some training teach them some skills and then you're going to have to have the processes that support that so sad news great capability not the silver bullet it often gets pitched so. there we go drag and drop developers it's not your day just yet yeah um number five so this is the last piece of news from this week's project roundup um ibm's board of directors have approved the separation of the tech giants managed infrastructure services business into an independent publicly traded company called yeah no one knows how to pronounce uh, it kindrel kindrel is my best guess there we go i went out <laughs> on the internet looking yeah uh, i found a few youtube videos not a consistent pronunciation kindrel appears to be kindrel. i mean it would have helped if they thrown at least one vowel in there well, you know, <laughs> I, suspect, I suspect marketing company was very pleased with itself for Kindle. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> enough said on that one. It's um, a marketing company, not a marketer. That's yeah. true. You yeah. did. Absolutely. Yeah. You are absolutely right as well. But yeah. maybe it's the Y symmetry. I don't know. Um, Solid K. But... <laughs> Worked really well for Kodak until they forgot digital. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Um, after the spin off, IBM will focus on cloud software, hybrid cloud, artificial intelligence, and other technology opportunities. Um, and actually, they started working with McDonald's to automate their drive through lanes. So mm. I think it's kind of just opening up um, their ability to kind of focus on those bigger projects. Um, Kindrel, we'll go with that, uh, will focus on services to design, run, and modernize customer technology environments competing against the likes of DXC technology. Now, in terms of popularity, in terms of where these technology companies sit, IBM, I think, drops a spot, but actually, um, Kindrel comes in quite high. Yeah, like, which tells you how massive IBM, IBM is. Yeah, absolutely. That it splits itself into two, <laughs> it drops to number two. Yeah. And the other one comes in at some like six, just behind extension. Yeah. Um, the thing is, though, it, IBM made lost a load of money. Yeah, I was reading about this. And Kindrel's the bit that lost the money. So they're basically just spitting out the loss making bit mm. to make the IBM bit look like a really good stock, right? Yeah. Fine. Okay. I would argue the Kindrel guys, those guys going off, they actually do some really interesting work. Um, and some of the work they do helps the bit that IBM really likes make the money. Yeah. But you know what? I haven't got an MBA and I'm not a CEO from Silicon Valley, so maybe I'm wrong. But it did look like spinning out. It was the equivalent of like when we reacted to the 2008 banking crisis by going, we will have a toxic bank. With all the bad debts. Yeah. Oh, cool. Have you got rid of the people who ran those big debts or? Oh, no. They've taken over a quarter of IBM's uh, 350,000 members of staff. Um, But I suspect the IBM board is still the IBM board. Probably, yeah. And if you look at the board for Kindle, there were some really interesting people who've gone in to do that. They don't feel like seat fillers. Yeah. So. Very strategic placement, weren't they? Um, I've forgotten who the. Well, there's some interesting people. There's some old friends of the firm, really. There's Stephen Hester in there, the ex-CEO of uh, RBS and NatWest. Um, you know, there's some real bright sparks in terms of, which is possibly the most patronising way of uh, describing someone who's a national uh, science <laughs> medal winner. But, you know, they were... But, yeah, they've got Cisco and Juniper Networks, yeah. you know, on their board. Wow, well, so... Juniper's not always one. Oh. But, um, but, but they're, um, you know, they're at least relevant, they're right? really interesting, credible people. So it'd be interesting to see. Um, Kindrel might not. There's always a difficult possibility, which is that you spin out the loss making bit and it goes off and wins. Yeah. 
And then you've got to ask yourself some difficult questions about why it did so well. Yeah. And maybe your business that you're left with doesn't do quite as well as you thought it would because it turns out you're burying a lot of losses in the loss making bit. Whatever the weather, I don't think it's quite as simple as it looks. But ultimately, what it looks like today is there was a bit of IBM that wasn't making a lot of money and they've spun it out to be a separate firm. Yeah. So. But also, I think they've understood, isn't it, that um, the need for application services and infrastructure services are like, they're a different need perhaps than the, the need for a software and like the solutions. And by packaging up. Fine from an organizational perspective until it was losing money. Well, 100%. So when you yeah, yeah. They've understood it, have they? Understood well, it? no, probably not. But um, <laughs> the fact that, that, you know, and absolutely you want all that kind of available under one roof, but mm. the fact that, you know, by losing that arm, of the, of the business, they're actually able to focus much more on software and solutions. And perhaps actually the, if the focus for that company becomes primarily about those two things, then maybe we might see more innovation there. And as you said, Kindle actually might have half a chance now to turn itself around because it will only be yeah. focusing on services and it won't have that bureaucracy coming from IBM as much as it's probably had over the last couple of years. I mean, these are all very good reasons why it could work out well. I can't help thinking that the reason it's been done is to protect the IBM brand. Well, yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where it works out. But yes, announced to much fanfare. Um, <laughs> it was just a bit. It was a bit of a. Do we believe this? Yeah. Um, I think we ask that question a lot on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of our tech community spends a lot of its time going. Do we believe this yeah. about anything really? Even if it's just a product <laughs> re- product review or manual. I mean, this would be a very boring podcast if we just said yes to everything and nodded along like Churchill dogs. So. Yeah, well, indeed. Or it, well, it could be like a lot of podcasts, really. I'm going to read this press release. But yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, do, do a little bit of that. Don't take the piss, right? That's indeed. my role on this podcast. That's a very vital role. That's right. I mean, you can turn out some press releases. But yeah, we, uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't know about this one. Um, it's, be, it's just going to be interesting, right? As you said, if IBM are protecting themselves, it's a clever thing from a business standpoint, right? Feels a bit, yeah, yeah, it is. It For them. Is. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, a very expensive management consultant probably told them it was a good idea. It'll be interesting to see what happens long term. And it, there's a lot of stuff. IBM is one of those companies where if you're outside, you don't really get to see in and how the decisions are made. They're not very public about that. Mm. So it was just an interesting insight that went all spin out the loss making bit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Um, that's all the news. As per usual, we're going to run through a few shout outs uh, now. The first of which, so we could pretend that we're recording this on the day it's released, but that's a bunch of nonsense. Oh, so tell the truth. Tell the truth. It's Thursday, right? And we are filming um, in the London office and to our right hand side in the main part of the office, the Devil's Playground team are busy, hard at work, um, pulling together the office, basically. They're so really, excited. So excited. It's our first hybrid DevOps playground tonight, and Ondak is joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, they've sent over some swag, which are very oh, excited. Didn't know there was swag. I'll show you oh, after. I've been in meetings. There we go. Take um, The panda's back out again. Uh, pizza's on its way later. Who's been panda? I don't know who's the panda. We can't let that. It's like telling someone Sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah. The panda is the panda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no one in the costume. <laughs> it, it just is. Yeah. In fact, there's a giant panda who lives in Lapland, and the pandas <laughs> you see at playgrounds are like the franchisees. It's okay, children. I mean, no, if you no, said no. some sort of bamboo forest, I think it might be more believable. But it, it, like... I'm very excited. The panda's out. Cool. Absolutely. And again, it's it's um. It's been run on YouTube as well. It's a hybrid yeah. event. Uh, so if you are listening to this on Monday and you're like, oh, drat, I missed it, mm-hmm. um, jump over to the ECS YouTube channel and look out for the hands-on with Staple 
stateful apps on Kubernetes with Ondat. Um, it's kind of a bit of a theme that we're going on at the moment about container-focused playgrounds, um, but they seem to be pretty popular at the moment. It's what people are working with. So go check that out if uh, if you're of interest. Do and thank you very much really for joining. sad, though. I was working on a big technical solution the other day. Well, I still am at the moment. And it's very much outside my comfort zone. And the bit I really tripped myself up on when I got asked a question by a colleague was the container element. <laughs> and I could not remember what the default container engine is in the new version of Kubernetes 1.22. And it's kind of like... For anyone else listening to this, so like if my parents were to listen to it, they'll all just go, those were just a series of sounds. They weren't even words. So embarrassing, though, given all the recent playgrounds have been all about containers. It's yeah. just like, ugh, absolute joke. That's why you need a Massey in your pocket. I feel that it's Indeed. the perfect yeah, yeah, solution yeah. to this. But ultimately, containers are a really exciting space at the moment. Containers yeah. and Kubernetes, they, for the first time in a long time, there's some evolution, and I think since Docker... Mm. kind of fell away it's like the death of the dinosaurs and there's loads <laughs> of interesting little mammals that are growing up in that space yeah um so it's an exciting space in um in the tech landscape at the moment because the big you know apex predator is gone really yeah so i think well worth a few playgrounds the whale has disappeared mm. um the last thing and we are super excited i don't know if you know this news i know this news um we have been selected as finalists for not one. Oh, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two categories in this year's European Software Testing Awards. And actually, I sat down and um, worked on these. And yeah. it was with two engineers of our team. Those of you, the teams were a lot bigger. But the two I got to chat to you was Matt Lowry and Grace Tree. The stuff I'm working on, like, there's still a diagram drawn on the whiteboard where Matt was trying to explain to me the genius of his genius. And it's just remarkable the solutions they come up with. And basically, they got dropped into one of our clients' accounts. Um, it, Matt was actually headhunted, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and what he's been asked to do, and actually it's a, it's a question that kind of comes up in a lot of our client projects, but how do you navigate around third parties mm-hmm. and actually the hurdles they put into place or kind of any limitations that are in yeah. place? And what Matt managed to do um, with the help of his team was build a solution where you could test without any reliance on third party tools, without any reliance on the environments, basically making sure the automated tests could respond to any changes in those environments. And he didn't, it's like the best layered pie I've ever seen in the sense of he knocked out one at the park and was like, no, nah, that's not good enough. Let's have a second one at the park. No, nah, that's not good enough. We can go one further. And there was just a three-part solution to a question that the client was like, we just need you to do this. And he's like, no, we can really do this. Yeah. And it's actually, I believe, right. going to change the face of software testing. Well, he's talked in the past about sort of evolution of contract testing. That's stuff. it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's something he's felt very passionately about and the possibilities of. So it's super nice to hear that it, it kind of got pulled off. Yeah. Um, but um, Matt and Grace are really good, but from different ends of the kind of experience spectrum. So really interesting that they've both been put forward for that. But no, I did not know about it until you sent me the outline for today's podcast. Ah, oh, there we go. And then I saw it, I was like, <laughs> ah. But we've spoken in the past on the podcast about the fact that you are the best person in the world for writing award submissions. Wow. Um, but obviously I'm as good as the work you know, yeah, it helps. Work with. Um, to shout about. But yeah, well done, Matt and Grace for getting nominated. Oh, it's been cool. And just to kind of add to that, Grace, um, Grace is one of our academy. Yeah. Um, I want to call her students, but she's not. She's a graduate. Um, alumni. Alumni. Yeah. From about three academies ago. Yeah. And she's just gone from strength to strength, and mm. is recognised internally with ECS a few times at um, our awards. And 
it's just so brilliant, obviously, that she's now working alongside Matt um, to kind of do this sort of exciting stuff. But again, I worked on one of the awards of her, and the, her side of the project is equally as innovative. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that just seeing what these guys come up with, I, get, I am always amazed. Those cohorts. That, that cohort of the academy, if you get better every year, but that cohort, there was something special. It was like Grace, there was Yulia, there was all those guys. Yeah. In there. I mean, some, some of them were just epic. Yeah. What I would say, and it's probably the bit, Matt probably didn't mention it in the awards submission, but during the pandemic, he was complaining a lot, so I bought him a whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. um, I think really any level of success in finally bringing his vision for what contract testing could become. Yeah. Part of the credit has to go to the guy who bought in the whiteboard. <laughs> I, this is, uh, I'm going to pat him on the back now. Just yeah. uh, you guys yeah. can't hear this. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, he's had a nice apartment. The, the real unsung hero. Yeah. Of deliveries. It's the guy who sent him at home a whiteboard and some marker pens. Oh, it's so, brilliant though. Yeah. I, I work in marketing anyway, so who doesn't have a whiteboard? Yeah. But um, when I say to Matt, like he's just, Go through that again. I haven't quite understood our, our interview. Let me like break it down. He goes, ah, oh, well, get me a pen. Yeah. And then the next thing we're over a whiteboard and he's drawing Lots it out. Yeah, and it really does break it down for you. And like, whilst I definitely couldn't code what he's talking about, I feel like I grasp. Imagine the poor guy in lockdown with that whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. I fixed that for him. Um, so winners so are excellent. announced. Well done. It well is done. excellent. And uh, we know the result. Winners are announced on November 9th. So we're going to have our fingers crossed until then. Cool. That is it. That's all the news we have today. Thank you so much for tuning in to hear myself and Terbs talk. Talk. I wouldn't say nonsense, but just chat. Well, I think we showed an extraordinary amount of discipline, really, not to get into billionaires or Facebook on normal rants, yeah. despite them both being in the news. And well done, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. If you want to learn more about those, wrong, absolutely. Yeah. Go do your own research. But yeah. those are our five top stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd actually love to hear from you if you had any additional stories that we haven't covered. Um, your thoughts on the on the news that we've obviously discussed today. And um, again, DevOps Playground. Get involved if you can. Those are yes. our free tickets. Have a good week. Take care. Cheerio. Bye.